This is an ABC podcast. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Hello, happy Friday. I'm Cassie Health with you for The Country Hour. I hope you're having a great day today. Are you already locking in your fertiliser prices ahead of seeding? Looks like things could be a little different compared to this time last year. Nitrogen prices have dropped and are level up in the last couple of weeks. Phosphate prices have tapered off and potash prices have tapered off in, in most markets in the recent months. But does that mean it's not going to go dramatically up or down beyond here? You know, we don't know, of course. I'll have more on that soon. If you have uh, tried to lock in fertiliser early, uh, let me know how you're going with it. Is it in good supply? How are you finding the prices after last year's massive prices? Text me 0467 922 or phone 1300 222 Also have a bit on what uh, farmers doing to uh, deal with uh, heavy crop residue after big bulky crops. More on that soon. But first up today, there's a big price premium on offer for heavy lambs at the moment. As there's a strong demand and a bit of a lack of supply, and that is pushing up prices. The heavy lamb indicator currently sits at more than 50 cents a kilogram carcass weight above the trade lamb indicator, which is pretty unusual. Angus Verley spoke to market analyst Matt Dalgleish about the price spread. Yeah, that's right. So when you look at the heavier lamb presently, Angus, uh, it's running at about a 10% spread um, compared to the Eastern States Trade Lamb Indicator. Um, and if you look at, like, normally this time of the year, it would be pretty much on parity or maybe at a very slight pre- premium, you know, like a 1% premium. So the fact that they're 10% ahead at the moment is quite uncharacteristic for this time of the year. So what's going on? Why, why the spread? Well, if you look at the first few sales, uh, particularly in those bigger sale yards like uh, you know up north in Wagga, New South Wales, but also Ballarat, um, Hamilton, and um, Bendigo, if you look at the sales since the start of the year, um, there were quite a few comments around the lack of heavy lambs coming through. So there was some good volumes of lamb generally, uh, but you know there was there was very much noted by the uh, MLA. Offices on, offices on site that um, there were very few heavy lambs available or, or you know, heavy lambs in you know, with good quality. Um, so I suspect that it's just, you know, with the season we saw, particularly in the south, in, in, in parts of New South Wales and Victoria being quite a cold spring and a wet spring, um, you know, maybe it was a bit of difficulty getting some weight on and, and so there's been a bit of a delay with those heavier lambs coming through due to that. Sometimes people question whether you should be trying to put extra weight on your lambs or just take what you've got and sell them. But maybe when we've got markets like this, if you you can get that weight on, there's reward for effort. That's right. It's always a tricky one because if you do wait too long, uh, particularly when you're talking around the spring flush, if you're trying to get your lambs at a certain weight when the spring flush is coming, you are very much balancing out extra weight for that potential price decline that you see when those volumes come through. Um, So it can be a bit of a gamble. Um, but yeah, it does depend like a lot of things in, in this type of environment. The timing is key, isn't it? Where's the demand for heavy lambs? Is that sort of exclusively export demand? Yeah, it is a lot. And, and particularly into the States, they, they do prefer the heavier lamb there. And that's one market, um, if you think back to how we saw last season play out, particularly for Australian lamb exports, the US 
uh, had the second really strong season for demand. It, it, it kind of backed off a little bit in November, December. Um, but if you look at most of the year, they were running about you know 25% ahead of, um, of of the of the average in terms of volume. So they were they were really um, had, a, had a very strong appetite for Australian lamb, and and they were the you know the main I guess the main export market that takes those heavier types. And across the board, Matt, just looking at the the numerous lamb indicators that there are, all showing a pretty healthy spike. Yeah, they have. They've started strong, um, you know, across the board. But like I said, heavy lambs are the ones that hold in the premium, which is unusual. But you know, most of the categories have held their ground from um, you know from the close closing price in 2022 to the opening price. And actually, the latter part of this week, you start to see some price gains creeping in, which is uh, quite different to what we're seeing in the cattle market. That's that's still kind of languishing a little bit, but lamb and sheep have, have opened relatively strong. Uh, and given there's been some big volumes kind of coming through compared to previous years in terms of both sale yard volumes and uh, slaughter volumes, the fact that the prices have, have kind of held and now started to creep up despite the big volumes is quite a promising sign. Okay, so that's what the numbers are showing. That, that on the on the flip side, that yardings and, and slaughter rates are are up as well. That's right. Yeah. So I said about you know there's a bit of a lack of heavy lambs, but there are you know other light lambs, trade lambs around. If you look at um, so the first few weeks of of this year and, and across the east coast, the the volume of lambs hitting the sale yard they're about one and a half times what we saw this time last year. Um, so that they're big, they're big, quite big volumes, over two hundred thousand head on the east coast. And for Victoria specifically, um, it's about, uh, I think, a, a double the amount. So, so there's double the amount of lambs coming through Victorian sale yards um, so far in January compared to 2020, uh, 2022. Um, yeah, so like I said, that's, um, you know, that's, a good, that's a good signal. If you've got those bigger volumes and the price can continue to climb a little bit, it means that there's you know, good demand out there. That's lamb, Matt. Perhaps we should also touch on mutton because not such a bright story there. No, that's right. Mutton has uh, that started the year a bit softer. Um, we did see uh, Angus towards the last quarter of last year. Uh, mutton export volumes kind of started to peter off a bit. They, like most of the year, they were sitting around average levels monthly, um, and then from about you know October, November, December, um, they kind of drifted off uh, to, to quite low levels, you know, comparatively from previous seasons. And I suspect uh, you know, 40% of our mutton exports goes to China. Uh, we know that uh, the latter part of 2022, China was had this ongoing battle with trying to contain COVID and they were still locking down cities at that stage and had restrictions in people coming in and it was impacting their economy and people weren't going out potentially and, and you know consuming at restaurants and whatnot. Um, so that had a, had a big impact on our, our export flows and I suspect that's part of the reason why we've seen mutton pricing um, come off a little bit just because of that reduced um, export demand. Um, the other the other factor too I think uh, that's leading to that is um, you know we, for the last few years we have seen uh, the premium or, or sorry the, the lamb premium over mutton um, narrow uh, so mutton pricing has been holding up relatively well compared to lamb you know, and and that's something we see a lot when uh, we go through a flock rebuild stage um, that there's a bit more retention of you know older ewes and so few, fewer mutton, you know, fewer sheep around to a degree because people are are desperately trying to squeeze an extra few lambs out so they might hold that year for another year. Um, and so often what we see is the spread between mutton and lamb uh, reduces like so that the, the price of mutton you know, goes a bit higher compared to lamb um, you know, in terms of the discount isn't as, isn't as um, wide. Uh, and, and we've got used to that kind of really good price in the last few years. And now I think as we're heading towards potentially 
um, a bit more of a normal season, maybe, you know, around the corner next year, we could see a drier season. I think there are some people now that are starting to just kind of ease back uh, in terms of their, you know, maybe flock retention. And so there could be a few more kind of older sheep, you know, kind of starting to make their way through to the market as well. That was Matt Dalgleish from Episode 3 speaking with Angus Verley there. One of the biggest players in the fertiliser market uh, says that it's keen to reflect any overseas reductions in fertiliser prices to ensure farmers here make good economic decisions and buy the volumes they need for this year's season. Uh, One of the biggest concerns with last year's crop was the cost of inputs like fertiliser. So if this is something you're keenly watching at the moment to try and uh, get the best value you can ahead of seeding this year, text me Zero four six seven nine double two eight nine one or phone one three hundred triple two eight nine one. Ben Sudlow is the sales and strategy and reliability manager at CSBP in Perth. He says that the demand for fertilizer is expected to be very high in twenty twenty three, especially after two back to back record grain harvests in Western Australia. Well, the way we look at it is you've taken off fifty million tons of grain over two years, um, which not that long ago, that was a, that would take four years to produce, nearly four years to produce that sort of grain. And the, the nutrient removal levels um, that come off sort of 50 million tonne of grain is, um, is colossal. So the expectation is that that's got to be replaced at some point in time. And the demand for fertiliser on the back of that, notwithstanding it's got to be a cost equation for the growers against their yield, is expected to be very high. So those prices, because we've seen that sort of drop off in prices on the overseas market, is that mm. starting to come into the domestic market also? It is. We bought, we've started importing product from probably July in 22 for this year. and We're bringing shipments in pretty continually. And as um, those have come in, we've pricing those and reflecting the, the changing costs into, into, the, into the marketplace. But phosphates... Last year, they rose 260 US dollars a ton. They've probably fallen about 150 US since then. Urea's up 400 US last year, and and we saw weekly swings last year of 100 US a ton. You know, they've fallen now 300 US dollars a ton, but not a lot of nitrogen comes in the market early. A lot of the phosphates, and I think the key thing for the local market is that or most straight phosphates that go on pasture or ammonium phosphate, your cropping compounds, most of those are imported now. Will be either in sheds in WA. They'll be on the water heading here. Will be costed, and you know that, that those costs are now reflected in the in the sell prices that we're seeing in the market today. So when you sort of made some of those purchases, as you said back in July, that would have been a much higher price than sort of today's prices. So those stocks that you've got in store there that you bought at those higher prices, are they being sold for the current price reflective of the overseas market here domestically? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lag between, you know, I, I guess it, own, it only becomes real, the, the offshore prices, and the moment we buy some and all the market buys some, and we and all our competitors now uh, have pretty much priced in, and that reflects a competitive market where, you know, anyone, uh, the, the market sets a selling price, and, you know, particularly with the cropping compounds, they're pretty reflective now on what the average costs in from all across the market that those people have bought various ships in over the last two months, three months or six months. So when the price moves overseas as it is at the moment, that downward pressure it takes a, a bit of time to flow through domestically, but when it goes up overseas, it's pretty immediate. 
the price hike domestically. Is that how it works? Not necessarily. No, not necessarily at all. One thing that's probably key in here too, if you think about the fertiliser supplies, is that we don't want high prices. We would like the we we like uh, to put volume through the the business, and what that means is if we can have our costs low, the farmers buy volume. You know, we've seen some demand destruction um, globally on particularly products like potash, and as prices come off, we want to reflect those cost reductions so that farmers can make good economic decisions to put. Uh, what they need on to grow the crop and hopefully put more on. Ben, how are you reading the situation overseas, the supply chain uh, situation, which has been disrupted for so many different industries over the last couple of years? And in terms yeah. of pricing for fertilisers, say, over the next six to 12 months, how are you reading it? 12 months ago, you know, prices were gen- generally going up and it went crazy on the moment that Russia went into Ukraine. I think the difference now is that the fertiliser world has sort of readjusted around that. Different trade flows are occurring and the volume of product is just going to different markets. You know, the Russian product, which was, where's that going to go to, is now flowing into markets where they otherwise don't care about Ukraine. It's going to China, India, Brazil, for example. So the, the supply is adequate. And it was nervousness supply 12 months ago that saw the prices jack up. Probably second big one, China, a big exporter of fertiliser, but they also have, will bring restrictions on exports to the extent that they want to protect fertiliser for their own market, their own domestic market. And when when prices have come off, though, their concerns around uh, fertiliser price and availability becomes less, and they have, and have now, at least currently, and again, this could change uh, overnight, exporting again, and a lot of the China... Chinese export companies are managing better some of the barriers that were put in place by the the Chinese government um, around permit systems waiting for um, exporting a fertiliser. So there's still a little bit more downward pressure you see there then? um, I think the other one, well, I think that's what's caused what's brought us down. The final one probably is is worth mentioning is sanctions. You know, the sanction regimes that came initially, those have softened in a lot of markets. And with sanctions and tariff regimes that are coming from various countries, they're more worried about making sure that they can get fertiliser into their country. So the trade flows into places like US and even more recently into into um, Europe um, uh, have seen carve-outs for fertiliser where sanctions or tariffs are not, are not like they are even in Australia. So at the moment... Uh, nutrient prices have fallen and what we've probably seen in recent months is they typically are now starting to level off. Nitrogen prices have uh, dropped and are level up in the last couple of weeks. Phosphate prices have tapered off and potash prices have tapered off in, in most markets in the recent months. But does that mean it's not going to go dramatically up or down beyond here? I, you know, we don't know, of course. Ben those Sales Strategy and Reliability Manager at CSBP, a big fertiliser company based in Perth, and he was speaking with Belinda Varischetti. Is that something you've noticed? Are you seeing things uh, ease off a little perhaps price-wise ahead of seeding this year? Text me 0467 922 It's 20 past 12. You're listening to Cassie Huff on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill.
weather's up next, but uh, sowing through last year's crop residue can be a, a big problem for grain growers, particularly after a season like 2022 when there were some pretty big crops in many parts of this state. And that's led uh, a farmer just over the border in Victoria who runs a cropping operation near St Arnold to trial fitting coulter units to an old cedar bar and running over some of his paddocks to chop up the residue in advance of sowing time. And he says uh, seeding through vet residue has been a real headache at his place. So come sowing time, uh, if we've had a good um, vet stand the year prior, basically sowing um, through it is a bit of a hassle and it ends up just blocking up. So you either need to, to flog it out with sheep or mulch it. Um, mulching's uh, pretty time-consuming and flogging it out with sheep kind of opens it up to, to blowing, which we don't want. So hence why we're looking for alternatives. Okay, so this is vetch that you've sprayed out as brown manure? That's correct, yes. Now, you're looking for alternatives and you're trialling or you're going to trial retrofitting coulters to an old cedar bar? Yeah, that's correct. Look, uh, we're not reinventing the wheel. Um, There are products out there which do a similar thing, but I didn't really feel like spending a quarter of a million dollars buying that implement. So um, I've dealt with Paul before and um, we talked to him about the idea and he came up with a, a, a coulter which basically bolts into a, a, an old air cedar bar which doesn't get used anymore. And we, all we do is unbolt the old, old tines and bolt the, uh, the coulters on and um, away we go. And just for the non-croppers, Andrew, what actually is a coulter? Oh, look, a coulter basically just, uh, just cuts a, a line in front of the, um, the air, air cedar uh, tines so it can just slide through the trash and um, doesn't bung up. People may say, why not, why not do what, what others have done and, and fit coulters to your air seeder proper so that you're making this pass all at once at sowing time rather than making a, a second pass in advance of sowing? Yeah, ideally that would be the, uh, the best idea, definitely. Um, one, my air seeder, uh, I can't put coulters on my air seeder, unfortunately, and, and two, Anecdotally, talking to people that have tried it before at sowing time, when you get dewy mornings and um, maybe a few showers of rain, the coulters don't do a very good job of cutting through the, the vetch. It's quite stringy. They actually start bulldozing, and and that's just a, <laughs> that's a problem where I know neighbours have actually ended up taking their their coulters off. So by doing what we're doing, we plan to run the bar probably in March when it's still nice and warm and uh, there's not much moisture about and, and cutting it up, cutting up then so the air seeder just um, slides through it, uh, hopefully, without any uh, issues. How about a speed tiller, Andrew? Is that an option? I've used a speed tiller before and uh, it didn't do a great job cutting cutting the vetch up and all I did was end up giving all my topsoil to the, the next-door neighbour. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of an issue for, for my soil type with, uh, with having paddocks blow. So, uh, no, I won't be uh, using one of those implements again around here. These coulter units that you've got, do they fit onto the old cedar bar uh, fairly readily? <laughs> the, uh, the old bar took a little bit getting the bolts uh, out, of the, <laughs> out of the old old bar. But, yeah, the, the new implements, that, that, the new machine that... Um, parts that Paul supplied, they just slot straight in and bolt in. So it's a, a pretty quick process, really. So just bolting in where the where the tines were bolted in? 
Yeah, that's that's correct. The old ones uh, come out, and the new ones just go straight back in. There's there's no yeah altering anything or no. It's a, it's very simple. Are you going to run on the same lines as you'll sew on, or, or are you going to take different lines? Angus, I'm I'm not exactly sure yet. Um, I'm thinking that I might run on a slight angle. Most of our our vets goes into uh, canola the following year, and, and canola needs to be at a precise depth. So I've just got some concerns about if I follow the, the same lines as the uh, the air seed is going to go with the canola. I might might be causing some issue with um, with depth of sowing. So I'm, I'm potentially going to be cutting the the vetch on a on a slight angle. Yes. Have you got other residue apart from your vetch crops that you might do this in as well? Uh, yes, we've got. Uh, some lentil paddocks from uh, from this harvest at um, areas where we haven't harvested due to washout, and um, I can see issues trying to sow through them with the uh, with the air seeder. So potentially, I'll be I'll be running this uh, this new machine over it as uh, as well. It's early days for this machine. I, whether it works or not, <laughs> I'm, not I'm not exactly sure, but. Um, it's a much cheaper alternative to the uh, to some of the implements that are out there, which do exactly the same job. Andrew Jesse farms west of St Arnold, speaking with Angus Verley. There, we'll have to see how that uh, uh, invention goes for him. I'll hopefully follow up with that. But we'll head across to the Bureau of Meteorology now. Senior forecaster Vince Rollins has the latest. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. So, how are things looking heading into the weekend? <clears throat> yeah, obviously a pretty hot one today. Already seeing uh, temperatures. Uh, yeah. Um, rise from from what we saw over parts yesterday, and a little bit of cloud in the in the west as well. But we're still expecting uh, that risk of shower and thunderstorm activity to develop in the, the west today. And uh, yeah, as we head into tomorrow, it looks like it's going to consolidate in parts to a bit a uh, bit of a rain band and producing some reasonable rainfall totals. And uh, yeah, still a risk of some thunderstorm activity in the, the north associated with a trough that is going to move through. So we are looking at uh, issuing some warnings for for that system as it moves through. So it looks like we'll put out probably in the next uh, hour or so a severe weather warning for for western parts of the state just to cover um, the potential of embedded thunderstorms. But uh, as we head head into the overnight period, it does look like it will consolidate into uh, more rain than showers and and thunderstorms. So that's uh, just something to keep an eye on. But uh, yeah, certainly um, we are expecting that trough to to start moving into the far west sort of later today. So some uh, southerly winds coming in behind that trough and that continues to move eastwards tomorrow. So we will see see uh, conditions certainly cooling down behind that trough. Uh, still pretty hot in the, the northeast uh, before that trough arrives, but we will see those cooler conditions extending right throughout by Sunday. But as that trough moves eastwards, as I mentioned, we will see the showers and uh, just extending over pretty much uh, all of the state over the, the weekend. Thunderstorms are continuing in the north and possibly some, some gusty thunderstorms and heavy rainfall with those, but it's really that uh, rain over in the west that we're a little bit concerned about, hence the um, the reason we'll issue that severe weather warning. So it still looks like we'll get some, some rain extending a little bit further east as well in some parts, so we could see some relatively good falls as this system moves through. But uh, coming in behind that trough, we do get another high-pressure system, so those uh, southerly winds are going to continue 
uh, right through the remainder of the forecast period, pushing most of the weather um, to the to north and then to the northeast and clearing by late Monday. But we do start to see a little bit of shower activity developing across the southern agricultural area from around midweek next week. So uh, not much in that, but a little bit. So yeah, rainfall uh, a little bit tricky just because of the nature of the thunderstorms and rain. But generally with the showers, we're looking at uh, around two to 10 millimetres. Could see some higher falls with the rain and thunderstorms getting up to around 30 millimetres. But there is a little bit of a risk with that activity in the west that we could see some of the falls getting into that 30 to 80 millimetre range um, which could be a little bit of a concern for some flash flooding Cass. Yeah right, something to keep an eye out for mm. there. Vince, thanks so much for that forecast. More to come on your ABC local radio through the afternoon. In the far west of New South Wales, the upper western will be sunny tomorrow. There is a chance of a thunderstorm in the northeast in the late afternoon and evening. Overnight the temperatures are only getting down to 21 to 26 degrees. That's because the day is still going to be reaching the low 40s there. The lower western will be mostly sunny. Uh, could get a bit windy as well through the uh, uh, evening. Overnight temperatures will fall to between 17 to 21 degrees and again the daytime temperatures reaching the low 40s. More to come on the Country Hour as we approach 12.30. You're listening to the Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Cassie Huff. Cassie Huff. Hello, it's great to have your company this Friday afternoon. I am Cassie Huff and uh, summer is the time for stone fruit and stone fruit is one of my favourite categories of fruit uh, but one that perhaps hasn't seen as much love in recent years is the apricot and I must admit I've probably only just come back around to apricots. We had an apricot tree so we always had heaps of apricots and uh, I think I used to just get a bit sick of them and found other ones like nectarines and things like that more exciting but it seems like there's been a little bit of resurgence in apricot consumption. I think on the back of the pandemic, people have been looking for more products that are uh, long-term pantry stable, so uh, people are looking for those. And also there's been a, a resurgence in, in home baking as well, and also snacking, and people want a, a good Australian product. So have you been getting back into eating apricots, whether they're dried or fresh in recent years? Uh, why are they your stone fruit of choice? Uh, what do you do with them? I'd love to know. Call me or text 0467922891. You can call in on 1300 991. I'd be interested to hear, given we do have an apricot tree, but we've really only ever eaten them uh, fresh or stewed them up and had on had them on um, cereal when it comes to the fresh ones and never really dried them. But uh, there is a bit of a resurgence, particularly in the drying area. So I'll get into that soon. Also, can you believe it's been 21 years since the release of Down River? Now, soon you're going to hear from the Mool Canyon mob. They're reflecting on the song's positive effect on the town. So I'll have more on that soon. But first, here's news with Matt Coleman. Good afternoon. Hello, Cassie. In the news this afternoon, the RSPCA says that South Australia's animal welfare laws are the worst in the nation and have not been reviewed since 2007. The state government has launched a review of the legislation and has opened it up for community consultation. The RSPCA CEO Paul Stevenson says that under current laws, the organisation is restricted to pursuing criminal prosecutions, which set a high bar for standards of evidence. 
The Liquor and Gambling Commissioner says alcohol restrictions in Port Augusta and Wyala will continue to be monitored. Restrictions on the sale of takeaway alcohol similar to those in Port Augusta were extended to Wyala in September. And the government is seeking submissions from Aboriginal people about the proposed site of the new Women's and Children's Hospital. The request comes as the building of the new site may uncover, damage, disturb or interfere with Aboriginal objects, sites or remains. More news at one o'clock. Thanks for that, Matt Coleman there. Now, as I was saying, do you use dried fruit in your cooking? One of Australia's largest dried fruit companies is expanding its apricot production to meet the increasing demand of consumers. Angus Park Supply Manager David Swain says the company is replanting its apricot orchard in the Riverland with newer, higher-yielding varieties and it's increasing its intake from growers as well. So what we've got is a 40-hectare property at Pike River. We've had apricots planted on that for 25 years and they've come to their... uh, Uh, useful lifespan so we're going through and planting up with uh, the new sardi varieties that have been developed by the industry. This year we've planted about uh, 50% of the property up and um, in two to three years time we'll remove the older trees and uh, replant with with new varieties as well so effectively the old orchard will be replanted to the new varieties within the next three or four years. And those are the newer varieties that you're able to use less to make more from? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, so what we've got is that uh, the new varieties have a lower dry ratio. They've got a more firmer, larger fruit as well and uh, will withstand a, a lot more um, handling. And they've got a tighter window as far as maturity goes too. So we can uh, be able to harvest a lot more fruit off in a shorter space of time. So uh, they've got some huge advantages there. They're also a higher yielding varieties as well. So we'll be able to pick more off per hectare. So the apricots that you process here at this site in Loxton, are they all grown in Angus Park-owned orchards or do you also take in apricots from other growers? Primarily we uh, process all our, uh, all our own and that's uh, the focus, but we've also been uh, working with a, a few local growers to take fresh product in as well. So we've taken in uh, probably 75% of our apricots have come from our own orchard and the other 25 are fresh have come from external growers. Um, on top of that we do purchase in dried apricots from um, external growers as well. So uh, we're always on the, uh, the hunt for more dried apricots to come through the uh, facility and uh, to uh, get to a retail bag. How have you found the response from growers? Have many been looking for places to send their apricots? Yeah, this uh, well, we're undersupplied, so um, yeah, growers have got opportunities to do uh, some um, of their own operations and sell some through farmers markets and uh, that style of arrangement. We've been working with growers around, and we've been encouraging some to get larger and uh, putting in varieties that uh, you know uh, we see that are going to uh, really make the industry. Uh, profitable and that they're going to be a style of apricot that's going to be sought after and we're getting uh, demand through uh, a lot of our customers now for more Australian products so we see it uh, as really something that we can um, hang our hat on going forward, um, encourage growers to put uh, more of these uh, new varieties in place that'll have some financial benefits to them as well. Yeah it sounds like quite a significant investment, Uh, how much more demand are you getting from Australians for Australian grown apricots? Yeah, well, it's right across the, the whole lot of our uh, range. So it's even through uh, the, the uh, dried vine fruit sultanas and such too is that uh, we're getting demand through there that's growing. Um, I guess at the moment is that uh, because we're coming from fairly a small base with the amount of apricots that are consumed within Australia, the, the amount uh, that we could uh, actually sell would give you know, three, four times as much as what uh, Australia is growing at the moment. 
do growers get much return for their apricots from Angus Park? So this year, uh, to recognise that uh, uh, we're requiring more apricots and also uh, to give good strong indications to the grower base, our apricot price lifted by 10% this year. The highest quality apricots were up around $11,000 a, a tonne mark, so you know that's been um, a good step forward. Up until now, the prices have been fairly steady, but with this resurgence in the marketplace, we're really seeing that there's a real demand for it, and um, <clears throat> we're putting our uh, money where our mouth is. And what do you think is driving that demand for your products? I think on the back of the pandemic, people have been looking for more products that are uh, long-term pantry stable. So uh, people are looking for those. And also there's been a a resurgence in in home baking as well and also snacking and people want a a good Australian product. Across a lot of regions, uh, apricots had been going out of fashion. Some growers have been turning away from that. Was there a bit of a decline in, in apricot growing and selling in recent years? Oh, there's been a consistent decline in plantings and as trees have got older, growers have got older, you know, we've had people that have exited the industry and um, there hasn't been a lot of incentive to uh, plant up the same varieties that were around. But now with these new varieties and uh, the demonstrations of those around uh, what the profitability can be like and the increased yields and, and such, I think we'll find that uh, we'll see a, a resurgent in, in plantings um, and more growers will become involved in these uh, varieties and not necessarily on a really large scale, but these varieties will lend themselves to a, a smaller family-run operation as well. Be a good option for people in the wine industry looking to diversify, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. And um, you know, when we're talking, uh, you know, wine grapes and other commodities around um, the, these new varieties of apricots will stack up very well against any of those commodities. Angus Park Supply Manager David Swain. Summer Fruit Australia Chief Executive Trevor Ranford says more market opportunities for apricot growers is good news. Oh, look, I think uh, you know the the opportunity is there. It's probably an industry uh, or a sector within you know, the uh, four groups of uh, stone fruit that declined over a period of time, uh, probably because of the lack of demand and uh, and the return on apricots in general and dried apricots. But I think uh, again, there's always the opportunity uh, if uh, the processor is uh, looking to. Uh, develop or redevelop that market. I think there's an opportunity for growers to work uh, with the company in putting the right varieties in and and increasing the market opportunity. What sort of decline has there been in apricot plantings in, I guess, the last decade? It's it's hard to say, but certainly from the point of view of stone fruit and the riverland, it's probably declined by uh, 25-30% at at a minimum. Apricots are one of the four components of of stone fruit and they've probably been the one that's uh, declined uh, more so uh, with uh, uh, increased plantings of probably uh, new varieties of nectarine and plums. But again, there are some developments of uh, new varieties uh, around the world and uh, so I think you know the opportunities are there to uh, to regrow the industry but uh, now the bottom line I suppose is uh, ensuring that uh, growers are going to invest and they get a a good return on investment as far as their products concerned and uh, often at times the processing sector uh, is uh, probably been paying lower dollars than say in the retail market so I think uh, as I said the opportunities are there it's a matter of the process of looking at working uh, with a a group of growers to uh, develop the program in a a partnership approach. 
Summer Fruit Australia Chief Executive Trevor Ramford ending that story from Eliza Berlage on the bit of a resurgence in uh, apricots, particularly in dried apricots. Is it something that you've perhaps got more into since the pandemic when you want something that'll stay in your pantry a bit longer, for instance? Jesse from Mitchum has been getting uh, his dried apricots from farmer's markets because uh, he likes to make sure that uh, they're Australian grown. Uh, the uh, He says the country of origin labels are sometimes hard to find and some brands uh, and uh, uh, if it says local or imported, uh, he avoids those. So thanks for, for texting in there, Jesse. Uh, do keep the conversation going. I'd love to know. I wasn't a big fan of uh, apricots as a, a child, but I've grown to, to enjoy them a lot more as I've got a bit older. Um, there's also a text in here saying uh, uh, a lady called in who didn't want to speak on air, but she did say that she buys big bags of dried apricots when she's in the Riverland and freezes them. That's a good way to have them last as well. Thanks so much for calling in, Nan. It is 19 minutes to one. On digital and on mobile. ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. To the Air Peninsula now, and a farmer at Sharinga on the west coast says one of the best things he's done to con- is to continue planting trees on his farm. Bill Nosworthy has been restoring the natural environment on his property since the 70s, but in the last 10 years he's joined with Greening Australia. And Mr Nosworthy has a focus on strategic grazing removal and the planting of native trees, and he says the relationship with Greening Australia has been a great help to receive um, the assistance in planting for the future. Uh, Greening Australia came on board in around about 2012 and we started talking then. Uh, so 10 years ago, Simon Bay has been particularly useful, very useful in, in finding funding sources and, and actually doing the job. So what it's done is taken a lot of load off, particularly Sam, who's been working at our property for over 30 years now. Uh, and he's done an awful lot of the revegetation by hand himself. The Greening Australia one, though, with the direct seeding has, has been a game changer and in the most part has been highly successful. And so how many trees do you think you've put out so far with this uh, with this partnership? Oh, dear. That's a very, very big question. Um, I would not try and count them because there's been a very successful regrowth in many areas. Uh, it's better off to go in hectares, and I think we'd be looking at better than 500 hectares total now. So it's quite a large area spread from uh, one end of our place, Lake Hamilton, to the north end over a stretch of around about 10 kilometres. What has it meant for your place there, Bill? The original project, which started back prior to 1970, even when we were just preserving any little trees that came up in the middle of nowhere, that one and the first of our successful direct seeding have had grazing back into them again. And the grazing has been uh, much more successful with the tree coverage than it was prior. It seems as though the trees and the pastures interact very well together. Uh, The cover of the trees gives us a longer green season and seems to provide a better base for the plants that are growing understory. What sort of plants are you putting in? What sort of trees? Uh, Predominantly, we're going with the she-oak and some of the tea trees are planted as well. Uh, Initially, also, there's a lot of wattles go in and they provide a base for future regeneration. They don't live that long, but when they die, they provide a, a, a dead nest of branches, if you like, for young seedlings to come through and protect them. You touched on this a bit, Bill, but what does it mean on your property when it comes to, to grazing stock? Yeah, when it comes to grazing the regrowth, I guess it's got to be done quite carefully, but it's also necessary. And um, we have gone in after eight years 
of growth and put sheep in there with no visible effect. But what it has done, no visible effect to the trees, I should say, but what it has done is reduced the level and, and bulk of the dead grasses during the summertime and, and that relieves the worry a little of fire coming through and, and taking out everything you've planted. So managed grazing in short-term high-volume introduction, it makes a lot of difference to the outcome. It gives the trees a little better go as well because they're pruned up a little from the base and they grow taller and neater. And by having these these trees on your property, has it meant you've been able to use this area for things like shade for, for livestock or do you keep them away completely? No, no, the shade aspect is, is very important. That's a part of it. Uh, both shade and shelter and shade and shelter are two different things. The, the shelter is uh, giving provision in the lambing season for the sheep to get some relief from the cold and the wind so they have somewhere to get out of it. The shade aspect in summertime is equally important but it's also very important to have a large number of trees rather than just a few uh, so that the sheep have a lot of spread rather than camping under just one or two trees. That often does damage to the trees themselves. And Did you think Bill back in you know back in the 1970s when you first started this rehabilitation work that you'd get to the point that you are today with all these trees on your property? Well Brooke I don't think so. You couldn't have foreseen it and and um, uh, it really comes down to more than good management. It comes down to good luck with the seasons. And you can see when you have a good season, the amount of regrowth that occurs. And if you take that opportunity, it might only come along every 10 or 20 years and encourage that young growth. It doesn't really take that long and that hard a management to get them up to a stage where they're, they're able to stay away from predatory feeders. And is it something that that you think most farmers can do or, or it's not always viable on on, uh, on other properties? No, I think it's something everyone can do. I guess it's a choice thing, though. It does mean a little bit of commitment in, in shutting up an area for a degree of time, but I guess the, the hardest part is the first lot. Once you have done an, an area and established it and can regraze it, then you follow on from that and you actually increase the grazing capability of the patch that's been revegetated, at least to our experience. We'd probably raise our capacity by 10 to 15% with ease and still run it very lightly. So I don't think anyone can't do it. The, the problem is to find an area of the right size to be able to, to do that practice within a paddock or a whole paddock. I think the way that we've managed the place with, with Greening Australia doing their plantings, not only direct seeding, but... Simon's also planted a lot of stuff by hand and we've moved on a little from she-oaks to uh, putting in some red gums on places where they used to grow 100, 150 years ago but have all disappeared. So we're planting them back, or at least Simon is, and Sam is in areas where they used to flourish and for some reason everything died off. So they're, they're in those areas to get flooded during winters quite often and they're absolutely flourishing. They're growing at two or three metres a year, some of them. I guess the only other thing would be, well, I suppose it shows uh, the way that you manage the land has to change a little. Uh, maintaining a very good pasture base is really important because that keeps moisture in the ground by mulching, if you like, and keeping the grazing reasonably light maintains that cover year in, year out. Sharinga farmer Bill Nosworthy speaking to Brooke Nandorf and uh, hopefully he had a 
good uh, strike in the last year or so with that good weather. Uh, now, uh, heading to more north of the state, a recovery project to save an endangered Australian marsupial is proving successful following the birth of 11 baby quolls from a newly introduced population in the state's Flinders Ranges. Western quolls, known as Idna, were previously extinct in the Volcathana National Park after cats, foxes and goats destroyed their habitat. The Department of Environment and Water's reintroduction ecologist, Tali Moyle, says evidence of breeding is a positive sign with the species numbers expected to grow even more. The monitoring program of the Idna or the Western Quoll has come about because we've released a new population up to the Volcathana Gammon Ranges. And so back in April last year, we did the first release to Volcathana and we took 25 animals from the Flinders Ranges, from the population there that was reintroduced in 2014. So, yeah, we took 25 animals up there and released them into the wild to start a new population up there. And so our monitoring in December just helps us determine what their survivorship's doing and how healthy they are just to check on condition. And we also radio track them, put collars on them to see what, shelter sites and habitats they're using in the area and how they're going. But we've also had two more releases in November since the April release, so that's why we're also trapping and monitoring in December. We released 10 individuals from Wild WA through the support of uh, DBCA in Western Australia, and then we also released 15 animals from the Taronga Western Plains Zoo, which is their breeding program set up to help Idna or, or Twitch, as they're also called in WA. So what sort of things have you noticed from these quolls since uh, trapping them? Um, I guess, so in December, it's uh, dispersal time. So that's when the mums have had the babies back in July and then they den them over, like they have them in their pouch and then they den them over the October to November period. And so December is a good time to trap because that's when the young ones start dispersing. And so that's when you can start picking up new individuals in the area. So it's a good chance to see how many have actually bred and how many young ones are running about. So since they were first released or translocated to the park back in April, uh, has their population increased or decreased? Um, well, there would be an increase. We've, so we've released a total of 50 animals out there and then obviously we've picked up another 11 new individuals. We don't always trap every individual because some individuals aren't trappable and if they lose their radio tracking collar which is actually only connected by thread and it's it's deliberately made that way so that it will drop off if an animal grows or you know is, is um, dispersing really fast so that the collar will drop off and it won't cause them any issue so sometimes we catch um, the animal straight away and other times they might drop their collar and just be be in the area but we actually had an animal drop her collar in April last year pretty early on and we haven't actually seen her since, but last week we caught her again. So that's a really good sign that she's still, you know, doing well out there. And, and she actually had um, evidence of breeding through the through the period as well. So it showed that she probably had six young as well by looking at her, her teeth. So they're doing very well, uh, all the ones that got translocated last year. And you've added a few more. Uh, do you expect their population yep. to grow within the next few years and are more expected to be translocated into the park or are you just going to solely rely on, on breeding now? Um, no, so we are going to do one more release coming up in um, April this year. So we would do our monitoring of the 
initial population in the Flinders um, in March and then based on the numbers we get there we'll take a small percentage again to release out to Bulkatana. So we'll probably, we're aiming to release between 20 to 30 more individuals and this would be really good just before breeding season so the, the boys tend to start chasing the girls around April, May and so if we release just before then it's a really good time because you've got extra animals in the system and more chance of more of them breeding. So, yeah, I expect their numbers to continue to grow up there because it's, it's actually a really good site for them and they're doing really well. Reintroduction ecologist Tali Moyle speaking with Christian Komenos. Good to hear that is going so well now. Uh, it's a very hot day today and... Uh, Many of you, it's probably the perfect time to uh, go for a swim. Maybe later on, before once the heat is out of the day, but uh, you might head down to um, maybe a dam or the beach or a river nearby and go fishing as well. And that's exactly what kids in the far west of New South Wales rapped about 20 years ago. They were five Barkindji boys who sang about their connection to the river, but they created a legacy for Indigenous Australian hip hop music in the process. And Yusuf Saudi caught up with the members to take a look at uh, what went on two decades back. They were five regular kids from the remote town of Ulcania in far west New South Wales, but they became trailblazers for Indigenous hip hop music in Australia. We were just us being us. Yeah, typical young people growing up down the river every day and present around on their push bikes. This is Colroy Johnson, one of the last members from the band who still lives in Wukanya. He's a Barkindji man and was just 10 years old when the Wukanya mob kicked off together. Kind of feels like it was only like just yesterday. And now look at me, 30 years of age. Where's the time gone? Not three daughters of my own, yeah, beautiful partner, that I, and I love them for the world. So, how did the Wukanya mob start up? It began at a community outreach project through Shopfront Theatre to give vulnerable youth opportunities. People from across the state, including Guga Yalanji and Wapabara man Brendan Adams, came to the Outback Town to help run the program. I was a dancer in Sydney and there was a project come up with Wilkenya. They were going through a lot of youth issues, but there was also at that time petrol sniffing in remote communities throughout Australia was very high. And they wanted to bring some positive programs to Wilkenya. It was here at this program that the boys came together. The Wilkenya mob was born. Brendan Adams became their band manager. And they released their song, Down River. Each of those boys wanted to give their own expressions about their lives. Fishing and jumping and swimming, which is their culture, their identity. And that's why we came here, was to emerge and make them feel proud about who they are and their identity. At the time, I felt like I was being recognised by not just the community, by like right around Far West. Then the song got hits, big hits. From placing number 51 in Triple J's Hottest 100 for 2002 to winning Single of the Year at the 2003 Deadly Awards. The Wilcannia mob spread Barkindji culture across the world. Since their music, there have been adaptations of the Wilcannia mob through other community projects. But after all these achievements, there was a lack of future support for the band, and it was hard to continue making music in 2003. So what's next for young people in remote areas when it comes to further opportunities in the arts? Is there enough? Brendan Adams says it can be difficult for Indigenous people in remote areas to find and pursue opportunities. We need to find 
the opportunities to bring the resources to remote communities because our culture is looking after our mob. But what, when you do that, you miss your own opportunities. Brendan reckons there should be more done from the government. Because the moment you focus and invest in our young people, you will build them to be their leaders. And what you also do is then you'll start breaking down those problems that we face, the chronic illness that we've got. Because you live better, you, you've got pride, you eat healthier, you provide for your family and you'll start breaking cycles. Colroy Johnson's passion for music is still in his heart and he wishes the Wilcannia mob was still together creating music. I wish I could go back. Carry on and pick up where we left off and not feeling like we were set up to be failed. We should have kept our group together and maybe we could have been on top if we ever haven't got an opportunity to start that group again and I'm 100% all in. Colroy says there's a lot of hidden talent in Wakanya. To all the uh, young, younger people out there, never, never give up on your dreams. Seize your moment. Keep pushing. Keep paddling your canoe. Never give up. Colroy Johnson, a past band member of the Wakanya Mob, speaking with Yusuf Saudi. If you don't remember the song Downriver, it was pretty catchy. Uh, a few people I work with remember it. I didn't grow up in South Australia, so I didn't hear it, but uh, thought maybe I'd... Uh, Finish off the program with it to take you into the weekend. Here's Down River by the Wilcamnia Mob. <laughs> okay, okay. Testing one. One, two, three, four.
and swim. When we go fishing, we catch in a brim. When the river's low, we jump off the bridge. When we get home, we play some beach. <laughs> How good was that? Little Canyon Mob there, 21 years on with Down River. That's all we have time for in the program. Thanks to uh, Steve from Loxton calling in about how he makes apricot sauce, so using apricots the way you would tomato sauce. Thanks so much for your call there. It's coming up to 1 o'clock. Time for news. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.